Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach for the Naval Institute. Joining me is my usual co-host, Captain Bill Hamlet, who is the Deputy Director, or the Deputy Editor, rather, of uh, Proceedings Magazine. Hi, Bill. Hey, Ward. It's great to be here. It's always a good day uh, here in Beach Hall. Uh, A couple things in the news uh, before we get to our guest. Um, We just christened um, the last of the uh the ddg uh 51 arleigh burke and it's which specific class are we talking about here hold on one um it's the flight two alpha um and so this was named after an irish marine named pat gallagher great name um, and that's also appropriate for st uh, patty's day. day so uh that's that's kind of cool um you posted a cool article on sunday that was one from the Wayback machine um Tell us about that one a little bit. Yeah, so last Sunday was uh, uh, on that day in naval history, 1942, uh, the PT boat squadron commanded by um, then uh, Lieutenant, um, and I'm drawing a blank on the name, sorry. Buckley? Oh, oh John, John Buckley? Buckley, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, that PT boat squadron that had been operating around the Philippines uh, and uh, up to that point in the war, and then uh, and then afterwards as well, uh, evacuated General Douglas MacArthur, his family, and a number of other people from Corregidor in the Philippines. And for that action, uh, John Bulkley later received uh, the Medal of Honor. Uh, so we I found that uh, from our archives, posted it on Facebook. It had a, a reach of about fifty thousand people. Uh, and, and a lot of people chimed in with, you know, uh, anecdotes of having worked for him, uh, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, having known him or having, you know, a father or grandfather who served under his command. Uh, it was a great interview with, uh, with uh, Vice Admiral Bulkley. Um, that interview was recorded and is part of the uh, uh, oral histories and archives of the Naval Institute back in uh, 1992. So it was a great piece. Yeah, that's uh, some of the cool content that we have uh, in our archives and, as you said, oral histories, which we like to highlight from time to time. Um, Cameron Rentner says, always good listening to you guys. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Another cool item on USNI News, uh, Electric Boat was awarded a long lead contract for Virginia-class Block 5 attack boats. So uh, for our submariners in our audience, uh, cool things are progressing with the Virginia-class there. Um, and last week we had talked about the fact that the uh, Vincent was in Da Nang. Um, they are back out at sea, but we uh, invite the audience to check out the fleet tracker on USNI News because Sam has posted some very cool pictures from that port call. Uh, just amazing shots. We were just looking at one in his office of uh, a bunch of uh, basically yeah. NVA right. in v- the hangar bay. Vietnamese Army yeah. uh, officers, or Army personnel in the hangar bay of the Carl Vinson, which is, uh, you know. Things you thought you'd never see. See, in, you know, 20, 30, right. 40 years ago, of course. Amazing. Yeah. So let's get right to our guest. So our guest this week is uh, Captain John Cordell, U.S. Navy retired, who uh, is a frequent contributor to proceedings, to the blog, to proceedings today. He's written for proceedings for a very long time. In the uh, March issue, uh, he has an article called It's All About the Sailors. Uh, And John is a a contributor who writes a lot about manpower issues uh, in the Navy. And uh, so, John, uh, thanks for joining us from Norfolk. How's the weather down there and uh, what's going on? Well, the weather's pretty nice here today. If you'd asked me yesterday, I would have described snow showers and clogged roads, but it's it's cleared up and it's almost looked like springtime. 
Well, we, we, we missed the snowstorm as well that is uh, or has hammered New England for the last uh, 24, 36 hours. So uh, tell us a, a little bit about your, uh, just sort of summarize in your words what your, uh, your article in the, in the March proceedings is about. Okay. Well, um, the article is basically uh, sort of a, a culmination of some discussions that I've had for the last five years with various folks on, on the issues of manpower and manning um, and sort of in the context of uh, the continuing discussions from the comprehensive review and the strategic review. Um, and to some extent, it was, uh, it was Admiral Pete Daly's fault when he asked us back in December, uh, Kevin and uh, um, the, the, at the uh, Naval Institute panel. Oh, Jerry Roncolato, uh, right. Jerry, right. Uh, thank you. Um, were there any omissions that we saw in the, uh, in the CR? And uh, it sort of hit me looking at the CR that there was a lot of talk about manning and manpower in the text, um, but it really didn't jump out as an action item or as one of the items to, to uh, uh, out of the action list. And so I thought I would kind of flesh that out a little bit. So you, in this article, you bring up the fact that, you know, when you commanded the USS Oscar Austin and the USS uh, San Jacinto, uh, that those both of those ships were manned uh, you know, the, the Sanjak being a uh, cruiser was supposed to be manned more than or, or high at a higher level than the, uh, the DDG. Uh, but, you know, you pointed out that you had about 295 uh, enlisted folks on the DDG. And then when you took over the Sanjak, you had uh, you manned at, at 265 for a ship that originally had been planned at close to 400. So... How did that impact your mission readiness? And and talk about that as you as you weave that thread through this article. Okay. Um, well, I think you know to put that in context, uh, my Oscar Austin tour was in 2001 to 2003, which sort of preceded some of the things that are talked about in the strategic review, the the optimal Manning top six roll down, some of those initiatives that that uh, that took a lot of folks off of ships, and then. The Sanjak was sort of the culmination time of, of those uh, impacts. So it, uh, it certainly impacted maintenance and watch standing. Um, there were a lot of cross decks. Uh, I had an in-serve during that time and, and kind of had to get some outside help uh, to get through that and, uh, and then took the ship basically from out of the yards through a deployment and then back into the yards. And so, uh, so yeah, it, was, uh, it made a lot of things just a little tougher than they should have been. Yeah, you, you have a... Uh Example in the article that talks about going through the inserve and about how your uh, CWIS, your close-in weapon system mounts, that you were manned. The division to do that was manned at three out of six, uh, you know, technicians, and your gun chief suggested, uh, you know, shutting down one mount, working on the other, and then shutting them that one down and working on the other to bring them both up in time for the inserve, and and then you 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 eventually you sent a CAS rep. And so you basically said, I, you know, my system's down, and the reason it's down is that I don't have enough manning. And uh, talk about the reaction to that CAS rep from your two different chains of command. Well, uh, you know, I'll admit that it was probably a bit of a stretch to, 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 to do it that way, but, um, you know, from our viewpoint, we couldn't keep both of them up. We had one of them that we took down, and therefore I had a reduced capability, so we flew the casualty report, and, uh, you know, wasn't well received, I don't think, on one side of the fence, on the surface side, but my boss, Admiral Dave Buss, was an aviator, uh, the strike group commander. He came back and said, uh, hey, I wouldn't fly my plane if I didn't have the maintenance crew to maintain it. Um, so, uh, so I got a lot of help uh, you know, from everywhere. And, uh, 
But, you know, it's funny you bring that up because uh, I was going to mention this toward, closer to the end, but uh, since you brought it up, um, you know, the article was posted and, and got a lot of feedback from junior folks um, saying, hey, thanks for bringing this up. And, uh, you know, a lot of this burden falls on the shoulders of our junior sailors. And then a chief uh, weighed in on Facebook and said, you know, I, I can't believe that that chief pulled the wool over the captain's eyes because my ship deployed with 50% manning and we did all the seawiz maintenance, so I know it can be done, right? Um, and so I, I read that and uh, and I kind of said, you know, I think that's part of the problem is uh, is this can-do attitude, and there's a whole chapter on the CR about it, is, is we mask the problem by just getting it done. So I went back to the basics um, I pulled up the maintenance cards for CWIS, a close-in weapon system, and uh, and I essentially found that there's uh, there's a whole bunch of checks. They're somewhere in the order of uh, of five weekly checks, about ten quarterly checks, about fifteen semi-annual. I'm sorry, about fifteen quarterly checks. Um, then there's semi-annual. There's situational checks. Um, when you do all that math, it works out to about 2.5 hours per man per day per person per day of maintenance. For a fully manned work center, so then if you if you cut the work center in half, now you're at five hours of maintenance per person per day. Strangely enough, if you add that to an eight-hour watch, which is sort of what the the Manning documents are based on, you're up at that 14 or 15-hour day uh, times seven, which is the 100-hour work week that has gotten so much attention. So, uh, can it be done? Yes, I guess I would say, uh, can it be done right? Not necessarily. Yeah, and your your article brings out that that point about the 100-hour work week, and you had a, a quote from Senator McCain after the the collision of the USS John S. McCain last summer, where, where he uh, just decried it as unacceptable that service members are working 100-hour weeks. Uh, and, and you've written a lot about, you know, circadian watch rhythms, about the Navy's work week, the standard work week, and how that work week increased from... Uh, uh, you know, over years from something like 67 hours up to over 70 hours. So talk about, about that a little bit. Okay. Um, and, and actually, just to be fair, uh, that discussion has been going on for a long time. If you read back to GAO articles as far back as 2010, um, I found a great technical paper by uh, Dr. Nita Shattuck and uh, Mr. Uh, Captain Robert Firehammer from 2007 um, that all kind of say the same thing, is that that uh, – the 67 hours is the denominator, right? So when you go in the OPNAV instruction, you add up all the work that people have to do, uh, watch standing, maintenance, training, et cetera, and that gives you a number of man hours. And that could be for a work center, for a division, for the ship. And then they have a number they've been using for, for, for decades was 67, uh, which is basically you take 168 hours in the week and you subtract out the time that you're on watch or you're, uh, I'm sorry, the time that you're asleep and time to eat and things like that, and 67 became the denominator. And then sometime around 2000, um, and according to the, uh, the, the articles that I read, based on a CNA study of two ships, two or three ships, they, cut, they changed that number from 67 to 70. Um, so they basically said that every sailor has three extra hours of work time in their, you know, in their system. And uh, so that doesn't sound like much, but what that is is about a 4% reduction in the requirement which translates to about a dozen sailors on a given ship that have been that were cut by that decision. Hold, hold, say, um, say that again, John. The, the, the okay, three extra hours so, of so work it's, time it's in their system. So it's confusing because uh, uh, you know the, uh, the 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 sixty-seven and seventy has almost, has nothing to do with how much work I have, uh, to, how much work I have to do. The sixty-seven or seventy is the denominator. So that's basically my capacity to do work as a person. 
And so by changing that number to from six, I'm sorry, from 67 uh, to 70, remember that number is in the denominator. So when I divide that numerator, which is the amount of work divided by 70 now, um, the number of sailors required to do that work goes down um, in the model, not in real life, but in the model. So essentially that change um, to the manpower math model um, took about 12 sailors off of every ship uh, compared to the old math model. Okay, that's that's what that work week yeah. discussion is about. Got it. And then, when, uh, and, when and that's they, not withstanding any changes to the workload that have come uh, as a result of other policies and things like that. That's just a boilerplate math to calculate the numbers. And then, when you have optimal manning or or other issues that impact the number of sailors that you are going to have on your ship, uh, or the you know the the Navy decides to man to ninety two percent or ninety five percent, some some number less than a hundred percent, that's when you that that number of hours per sailor per week start to jack up into the 80s, 90s, or, or 100, right? Right, because if you uh, if you have a fixed workload or an increased workload and you start to reduce the number of sailors, then uh, then obviously the math works in the other direction, and the hours worked by the sailors goes up, uh, you know, dramatically as you, uh, as you reduce the numbers and increase the workload, which is sort of what the CR says happened over time in the SR. Um, and so a lot of those have been undone by other policy changes, and there's lots of reviews going on right now like the import work week load and uh, and some other things, but uh, but it still is a uh, you know what what I kind of have maintained and what I mentioned in the article is uh, a simple change to the opnav instruction would make a big difference in the model and put that demand signal back out there. The other piece of that model, and you touched on it briefly, is the circadian watch rotation, which I've been very happy to see the work of Dr. Shattuck, uh, Mr. Captain Firehammer, and others. Um, sort of the research over the years be put into policy and sort of recognize that sailors, you know, the human beings require a certain amount of sleep to function properly. And uh, it was sort of a discussion item in the CR about fatigue as not necessarily a causal factor, but a contributing factor. And, uh, and so what that's about is when you look at the math in the OPNAV instruction, it assumes 56 hours of watch, which is an eight-hour watch times seven days, right? Um, and... What the circadian uh, watch rotation is about is standing the same watch every day and maintaining a, a rhythm that matches your body rhythm. Well, in three section, that's very difficult. In fact, the, the best one really for the research is a four-on, eight-off rotation, uh, which works wonderfully if you're a maritime you know, merchant mariner, uh, a cruise ship uh, driver, or something like that. But if you're a sailor on a Navy ship, four and eights can be pretty tough because of all the work you have to do in that eight-hour period when you're off watch. Um, so a lot of ships have gone to, I did it on Sanjak, uh, we got up to four section in most of the ship. Four section allows you some options like six on, nine off, uh, eight on, I'm sorry, six on, 18 off. It's a fixed four section watch rotation. And uh, so, and if you change that number on the opnav instruction from three to four as the baseline, now you set the ships up for success by the program. Um, in that, you know, right now, uh, I, I was telling somebody the other day, it's kind of like driving a car with different sized tires. Is uh, You're trying to get to a four-section rotation, but you're only manned to a three-section rotation. And, uh, and so you have to continually steer to stay on the road. And so there's a lot of effort expended in that. Um, so uh, now, uh, you know, back to the anecdotes is uh, I had a former CEO say, well, but I did it and you did it, um, so we don't need to change the the foundational math, uh, because we've proven it can be done. And uh, again, to me, that's a little bit of that can-do attitude, which is great, except that 
you shouldn't have to uh, go outside and, and, and maybe take other risks elsewhere, um, you know, to meet the one policy when the other policy doesn't support it. Well, you, you wrote a piece on the blog uh, last summer or fall called Go Circadian Now, where you recommended, and, and, you, and you laid out very, very clearly, you know, this is how you can set up a, a circadian watch bill with three section or four section, and it's very detailed with charts, and a lot of people read it, uh, and we know that a, a number of ships uh, actually surf for after the comprehensive review, uh, sent out a, uh, an all-nav or an all-surf for uh, message saying that you know ships should go to this kind of a watch rotation, uh, which which was you know pretty exciting for us to see the impact of uh, of something written you know for for proceedings or for the blog and and one of your former uh, sailors who I think is a senior chief on a on a uh, aircraft carrier wrote about implementing a circadian watch bill on uh, in his division on on a carrier. Uh, right. So, you know, one of the things that I remember from that that stood out is that there's uh, some discipline that needs to be uh, instilled in the, the the leadership of the ship, right? To uh, to make sure that there's certain times in the day that you know s- sleep is paramount. That that you guard for your sailors' sleep and that you don't do. You know the one MC announcements that go to the entire ship, and you don't go. Uh, you know, you know, you don't have a lot of uh, GQs or drills or things like that at times when you you want your sailors to be getting some rest. You know, and, and of course emergencies break into that. But but talk a little bit about that discipline of having of how to set up a circadian watch uh, rotation. Okay, um, and you know, obviously this uh, this has sort of been a. Uh a passion of mine since uh, since we did it on the San Jacinto deployment, and uh, a lot of research done by the postgraduate school, the Naval Safety Center, uh, the submarine force. Admiral Connor was a big uh, uh, proponent of this for the subforce back in 2014, 2015. And uh, you mentioned the all-nav, but they've actually signed out one of the action items from the CR um, that was signed out in November is the uh, Comprehensive Fatigue and Endurance Management Policy um, for surf war. Uh, and essentially, it's exactly what you said. There's really three pieces to it. Uh, the, the the first one, and really the most important one, is the cultural mindset that uh, that rested sailors are safer and will stand better watches. And then, so you apply that mindset to two places. Um, that's that's kind of the first thing is, is that cultural mindset. The second thing is um, look at a circadian watch bill. There's tons of research that shows how important the human circadian rhythm is, sleeping at the same time. And uh, the Crew Endurance website and the Crew Endurance Handbook put together by the Postgraduate School and the Safety Center um, give examples, multiple examples of watch rotations and help you decide which one's best for your operational environment. So that's number two, is using a circadian watch rhythm. Uh, Number three, though, and this is critical, is having a schedule that supports that. So if I sleep at the same time every day, that's great. But if I get woken up because it's my sleep time and I do Reveille or I play a nice song to wake everybody up or an evening uh, event or I do the briefs in the afternoon, instead, if, I'm sorry, if I do the briefs in the, in the nighttime uh, and schedule routine things that pull people out of the rack, then I completely uh, dismember the benefits of the circadian watch rotation. And so, uh, so it really has to be a package deal. Um, the watch rotation, the supporting schedule, um, and that impacts, you know, as we mentioned in the, in the instruction, there's examples, meal times, when do you train, when do you do drills. Um, but those are all controllable forces, right? Um, when we drive ships, you have the wind and seas are the uncontrollable forces, and you use your engines and your rudder 
um, to, uh, to, to offset them. By the same token, your, your operational schedule um, is, uh, is an uncontrollable force. Your manning is an uncontrollable force. Uh, but you have controllable forces in the watch bill and the daily routine that can, uh, that can offset those. Uh, and, in fact, this, this uh, instruction mandates, I believe it's seven hours uh, straight or five hours and a two-hour nap sometime. Uh, and that's just based on physiology um, and research. Yeah, I can't remember if it was in your one of your pieces or if it was uh, the senior chief who wrote that, uh, you know, at some point sleep deprivation starts to uh, exceed impairment uh, greater than, you know, DUI, right, Dr- greater than being uh, drunk or, or under the influence of, uh, of drugs or alcohol. Uh, and, you know, you go, go 22 hours without uh, sleep and, and you're, you're – like standing watch uh, after having three or four beers. I mean, it really starts to impact. And you would not put somebody on the on the you know TAO or on the bridge uh, driving your ship who's been drinking. Why would you do that with somebody who has is sleep deprived? You know, chronically right. st- sleep deprived. Right. And I think uh, you know I think the surface force has turned a corner in recognizing that. Although it's a challenge. I don't want to you know I'm sure some of my active duty peers, if they're listening, will say. Uh, you know, don't minimize the, how hard it is to really do this in an operational environment because well, you can't well, control. Yeah, that was you know, kind of and- that was kind of Admiral Davidson's point at SNA, right? He was kind of saying, "Look, we we have to uh, train to basically be be sleep derived." I don't know if you heard him say that. Um, I did. I I don't think that's what he meant, but I understand kind of where he's coming from because you may not have a choice. I mean. Uh, when the Fitzgerald and the McCain collided, it was the middle of the night, and uh, and the sailors had to respond. Um, I guess uh, you know, sort of my other way of saying that is, uh, we should we should avoid uh, self-inflicted sleep deprivation um, because we haven't thought through the schedule, because we haven't changed the meal hours, because we won't change when we do our meetings um, and things like that. The other thing, when you talk to the fatigue scientists. Um, they'll tell you that you, your body builds up a reservoir either of sleep debt or of, of resilience, depending on what kind of a rotation you're on. And so if I have a, uh, the resilience of a circadian watch bill and a supporting schedule, um, when I do have that catastrophe and I have to rise to the occasion, I'm going to last longer. I'm going to fight the ship better. So uh, you're sort of investing in that one you know, hope, event that you hope will never happen. But uh, but that's an investment in the sailors, an investment in safety, and, and, and could be the survivability of the ship. John, what's your current job? Uh, I know you're working in Norfolk, and you're a contractor. You're, you're still working with the Navy, and you're writing a lot about about the Navy. So describe what you're doing and, and how you're interfacing with the surface forces these days. Okay. Um, yeah, I work at a, a group called Maidens University, um, and uh, a company, uh, it's a Hunt and Ingalls Technical Solutions, and uh, we basically do maintenance training on the ships under a contract for the surface force. So we train uh, officers, enlisted uh, crews on 3M and, uh, and maintenance. That's kind of why I ended up digging back into that SeaWiz discussion before, um, just getting a sense of what maintenance workload is out there. Yeah, you still have your finger on the pulse, you're, you're on ships, you're uh, talking to sailors and to officers and, and getting a sense of, you know, what's happening and, and you know, what the trends are. So no, I'm very fortunate. I, I retired and I was sort of able to uh, to go back and and uh, I hope give back a little bit to the force. Um, my wife says I just tell sea stories and get paid for it. 
but uh, and I do some of that. But uh, but I hope to you know I have a slide of a sailboat up on the beach, and I say, can my life be a, a warning to others? And uh, I try to recount the mistakes and, and and errors that I made, and 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 hope that other people won't make the same ones. So we we had an interesting discussion last week with a, a Jo who's a frequent contributor to to proceedings and also a frequent winner of our essay contests. Um, and it, it sort of uh, segued into a discussion about leadership and retention and that sort of thing. So based on what you just said about you're still sort of you have your finger in the the pulse and the the the, the folks doing it these days. What's your sense of where we are uh, with respect to the quality of those serving and um, the um, their morale. Um, you know, I, I uh, my sense is I hear a lot of folks kind of say that, that everybody's uh, you know things have gone downhill and and uh, we've kind of thrown the baby out with a bath and and I, I don't agree. I go on ships all the time and what I see is is alert, hardworking, enthusiastic sailors. Um, I interact with a bunch of officers who. Uh, uh, seem to be dedicated and competent, um, and uh, you know it, it's. Uh, I think it's a little tougher right now than it was when I was in command because of all the different uh, things that are out there that have been added to the plates of the ships, both operationally. Um, there's a lot of talk in the CR of just the operational tempo and the demands. Um, but uh, no, I, I I look at the faces on those ships and I see people that are you know they're firing on all cylinders. They love what they do. And uh, and it just sort of invigorates me. Um, every time I teach a class, I come back uh, just a little spring in my step because of the interaction with those sailors. And uh, so that that's my view of the world. Um, you know, maybe they're putting on a good face for me, but I don't think so. I mean, I found that, uh, you know, grow a beard and, and put a coat on and people tell you everything. You know? <laughs> um, so uh, I think they're being honest, but... Uh, uh, they want to solve these problems, you know. I think the the younger folks are grateful that people are uh, that the leadership is paying attention to the fatigue issue. I think that people are paying attention to the manning issues. You know, there was a uh, um, a footnote in the in the uh, CR that really caught my eye uh, that said something about uh, you know because there's manpower. We've talked about that, but there's also manning, and uh, and there's funding issues with not funding the account, which is actually being being addressed. I think. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it talked about gaps, and it talked about how they went from 1,500 gaps to 6,500 gaps uh, in a year, um, and that was kind of a footnote. And uh, wow, that's a that's a that's a that's a really uh, large number, and that's uh, gaps. And that makes it tough because those are gaps at sea. Right, was the sort gaps of the, at sea. Uh, yep. Uh, in in the footnote of the CR. Um, and, and those manifest themselves in different ways. You know, we, we looked at, uh, at OFRP and uh, back when I was at Surfland, and OFRP, the Operational Fleet Response Plan, pushed the number of sailors, the requirement uh, for deploying ships up. Uh, I believe it's like 95%. Uh, you could talk fit and fill, but it's really fit. Is in, uh, fill, in this case, is just the number of sailors. So to push the deploying ships up to 95%, you know, you picture a big bathtub and uh, – and, and you want to get one end of it up to 95%, well, we kind of only man the average at about 90%. So if I want to push one end of the tub, I buy a big fan, I push the water over to that side, and I get that side up to 95 but then I look behind me, the other side of the tub, and those are the ships in maintenance or the ones in OFRP, you know, they have to make up that deficit, and so they're manned at 85%. Um, and then when they have issues in the maintenance phase, you know, those policies come home to roost. So, you know, 
I think of the TICOM as like the person at the uh, at the aircraft uh, at the, at the gate at the airport when the plane's late, right? You're the one that gets to tell everybody the bad news, but you can't change anything. Um, all you can do is move people from gate to gate, and that's what we do. And uh, and you know that kind of goes back. Uh, the second thing that that hits on is the experience level. You know, I, I mentioned in the article how uh, what a big difference one senior enlisted person made putting them on a ship to focus the engineering department and get them through NSERV. And uh, so that was one of the things that I, that I brought up in the article that we had recommended a while ago, but there really wasn't a path to do it, is uh, there's a tremendous amount of experience in the master chiefs, uh, the chiefs messes in the Navy, but most of those billets are ashore. And so maybe looking at some of the key billets, the uh, the 3MC, the uh, the top sniper, the head engineer, uh, or and the combat systems maintenance manager, uh, make those E-9 billets and bring the experience back to sea. Um, you know, as a captain, I was at sea till the 27-year point. Uh, I know that our enlisted forces uh, is rode pretty hard, but uh, uh, that might be worth looking at because you know sometimes the the cumulative sea experience in a division um, could be very different between two divisions with the same number of people in them. And uh, I think there's some decent data out there that shows that that makes a difference. Yeah, John, you, that's a great point, and and uh, it's related, I think, to uh, some of the uh, commentaries that we've had in proceedings or proceedings today after the Fitzgerald and McCain collisions last year where a number of people have said maybe the U.S. Navy ought to go to the model that the Royal Navy or the Indian Navy, other navies have, where you have a difference in the surface community. You have engineers and you've got, uh, you know, deck or navigation officers, right, and, and you specialize. Uh, so you've commanded, uh, you know, two different ships, and you also were a nuclear SWO, nuclear qualified, and you were chief engineer on a carrier. So you're, you've got both sides, right? You, you've seen both sides of the equation as the top side right. as a CEO and, and as a chief engineer. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I uh, I've seen some of the articles, proceedings articles, and uh, and they have some valid points. I think though. You know, one of the challenges that we have is, uh, you know, we really motivate our slow community by the idea of rising up to the point of having command at sea. And, uh, you know, I did a tour of the German Navy, and the German Navy, you're right, they have a, a, a sort of a command combat systems path, an engineering path, and their chief engineers would retire as lieutenant commander or a commander, uh, but they would serve till they were 62 and maybe go back to the same ship three times as the Chang. Um, so there was, there would be... You know, you'd have to change like four or five pieces of the manpower equation um, to recruit the right people to keep them in, and then to allow them to stay in and, and not necessarily promote to captain um, and give up that chance. Uh, so I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, like you said, I've been on both sides. Um, I liked the fact that I got to play on both sides. That I would go to engineering and do that, and then I would come back to the surface force uh, and go drive ships and. Uh, and, and have command, and so um, I I I don't see a big flaw in our in our current system. I think certainly some of the training improvements that are being done are in the right direction, but uh, uh, I I don't put myself in that camp of going to the European model. Now, when you had command, did you were you operating under the XOCO fleet up model, or were you under the old model where your first XO tour was as a lieutenant commander, and then you had a gap and went back to sea? for Oscar Austin uh, as the CEO uh, after having been, you know, a, a, a tour removed from being the EXO? Um, I was of the old school. So I, I did an EXO tour on the coal, 
Um, I had uh, two commanding officers during that time, and then I went to the War College uh, and then came back as for my CO tour on the, uh, uh, on the, on the Oscar Austin. So I, I saw the old model, um, and it worked for me. I was happy to have a little bit of time to decompress uh, between the two tours, and, uh, and I was also happy to have learned uh, from two very different commanding officers, and I learned a lot from both of them, but it gave me some perspective. Um, and, you know, and, and the, I think you're probably alluding to the article uh, a couple months ago that I put out about uh, COXO fleet up, and uh, uh, I don't know that the old model is the right model. But, you know, I talked since that article came out, I've had a couple of my uh, former department heads who are now in command um, say that they like the fleet up model. They like the fact that as the XO, I got to learn the crew, and then I got a little break now, which is a change, a positive change, and then I came back as the CO. And uh, and now I knew my ship, I knew my crew, and I could really make things happen. So um, I think uh, I don't see it. You know, there was some discussion. I don't know which way the wind is blowing right now. There's some discussion of that going away. Um, but it's tough to undo. And uh, and I think the improvements that have been made uh, seem to be uh, seem to be taking foot. So yeah, uh, a li- little preview of the April issue of Proceedings, which we are on on deadline uh, for this week. Uh, goes to presses on, on Monday. Uh, Admiral Mullen and Admiral Natter have written a piece about the SWO career path, uh, and one of the things that that they are saying is that, uh, that going to that XOCO model, which happened un, under their watch, uh, was a mistake. So that's that's you know part of their article that that the XOCO fleet up model like that. that they don't like that that uh, that they they they. They talk about why that decision was made in the Navy. Largely, it was to uh, meet the joint uh, requirements that the that the force had, um, and but they also recognize that that has led to that long gap, that long period of time between being a department head and then getting XOCO tour, which you know we've talked about on the program has been you know sometimes as long as five, six, even seven years, which is a long time to sort of lose your sea legs, right? Uh, so right. that, that's well, coming in the April Especially if you join the Navy because of the ships and the sailors, you know. I mean, that's another piece of it. Yeah, nobody does that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give you that one. Um, but, uh, no, so that's interesting. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think one of the challenges is it's, you know, but the, uh, on the flip side, one of the, uh, I think it was the strategic review sort of took the surface Navy to task for changing the model so frequently compared to everybody else. Um, so if we change it again, uh, you know that that could there could have uh, that could also have unintended consequences, I guess. Yeah, you know, and as an a- aviator, I, I am used to the idea that the XO will fleet up to be the CO, right? I mean, it's just not I, right. I, it would be right. I don't know if it'd be strange. It would be certainly different to just have a guy come in straight as CO. You know, and I don't, I don't sure, know if sure. that's better or worse. Um, it would be certainly it, different. Uh, you know, you're right. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there's pluses and minuses to both, and uh, and I'm long past the time where I'm any part of that decision. So, Oh, that's not true. You write for proceedings. <laughs> that makes you right. an important, right. consequential that's guy. A, I, I can't solve problems. I can just write proceeding articles about them. Which do solve problems, and we're not kidding. Um, well, they start conversations that, that solve problems. That's, that's for sure. There you sure. go. There you go. Um, yeah. But... Uh, um, so, so, so I guess, uh, you know, back to the Manning article, um, I guess the point I wanted to make, and, and one of the reasons that I kind of signed up to do the interview is I just want to make clear that, uh, that I really feel like there's some recommendations in there, um, uh, that are worthy of some consideration, not because they're mine, because 
They're, they've been made by people like uh, Dr. Shattuck in her article, uh, Mike uh, Firehammer, who is a now deceased former CEO of NAVMAC, former uh, commanding officer of a ship. Um, the GAO reports, um, the Naval Postgraduate School. Um, there's a lot of, of evidence out there that shows that uh, that, the, that maybe uh, uh, you know a, a revisit to the manpower models. Um, would help solve some of the manning challenges that are out there. Uh, because at the end of the day, that individual, that top snipe who's cross-decked three times and deployed multiple times, um, you know, it's the sailor. It, we, all, we, we put this PowerPoint slide up and we say, okay, they're green because they got the 95% or 90%. But even a ship that sails away at 90% has 30 gapped billets. Um, and, uh, and for every one of those, there's an impact. There's an impact on the ship that, that loses the person to cross-deck, there's a sh- an impact on the ship that gains the person who maybe not trained up with the team. You saw the issues on the, uh, I think it was uh, John S. McCain, where they had cross decks who were not from a different ship who were not trained up on the systems. And uh, and we, you know, and I was a culprit back at the TICOM days. I cross deck people. I don't think I gave enough thought to, gee, how different are those ships? And, and how much qualification has to happen before they can stand watch? Yeah, that was so that was part of that. the. We had talked about that. The Lee Helm issue on McCain was was the, right. the cross deck piece was was a contributing factor there. Yeah, hey, right. And, and I don't know whether those cross decks were there because there were gaps, or perhaps because the Antietam, if you recall, had uh, had had a collision itself and was getting fixed. So perhaps uh, they were over there to get some sea legs. Um, but regardless, you ended up with with a cross deck situation. Um, and uh, so how you got there is kind of moot, Um, but we do get there, I think, too much, and it's the only way to fix it if the manpower models don't change. And, you know, maybe you can't go four-section across the entire ship. Um, You know, right now the the base instruction sort of has a one-size-fits-all, but, uh, you know, with today's computational capabilities and policies, um, maybe in the nuke world we have what are called key watch standards, um, and those are typically the ones that impact the reactor directly. Um, so maybe you apply that four-section rule to the key decision-makers, the, the combat information center, the bridge, maybe engineering to some degree, and not just a blanket across the ship. Uh, because you do have to worry about rack space and, uh, and, and other, you know, you only have so, you can only increase the crew so much. But again, I think I forgot the gentleman's name who wrote the article about scarcity-based, um, you know, we, we sometimes we find ourselves planning based on what we think we can get, not on what we need. And uh, um, and those gaps come home to roost. You know, I wrote the story on the coal, how the ship never had a damage control chief. Um, you know, uh, some of these ships in the pack fleet have gapped quartermasters. Well, here you have ships uh, in in high uh, you know areas of uh, of traffic. And uh, what's the impact of having some key bridge watch standards that aren't there to train people? So, uh, uh, but uh, I wanted to read um, something from, uh, this is the technical paper from the ASNI Journal. Sorry to read from somebody else's magazine, but uh, um, it said, the title is Avoiding a Second Hollow Force, the Case for Including Crew Endurance Factors in the Afloat Staffing Policies of the U.S. Navy. Um, This is a 2007 article, and it says, part of the inadequacy of the current staffing policy results from the failure to consider an inviolable and basic physiological requirement for adequate sleep and rest for our sailors. Research indicates a strong causal relationship between sleep and performance. And then it goes on to say, to achieve full combat capability, the Navy must change its culture and adopt programs that promote crew endurance. 
Um, so that's pretty powerful words, and, and I think we're doing that from eleven years ago. Um, yes, sir. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, uh, and, and again, at the end of the day, and that's I think you all picked the perfect title. Um, for those of you that want to write for proceedings, just bear in mind that they never take your title. They always come up with a better one. Uh, <laughs> and I used to push back, but I found out that I was wrong every time. Um, but uh, but at the end of the day, um, it's that individual sailor who bears the brunt of all of these policy decisions and and uh, and, uh, and actions taken to mitigate uh, the the shortfalls and the gaps. And uh, and so that's where it all kind of hits the road in my yeah. mind, and, John, and that's that, why that's what motivates me to write this stuff and uh, and to discuss it. Well, thanks for writing for us, John. Uh, it's been great having you as a guest on the podcast today. So our guest once again was uh, Captain John Cordell, U.S. Navy retired, uh, commanded two ships, two surface uh, combatants. He's written the article called "It's All About the Sailors," starting on page seventeen of the March issue of Proceedings. Uh, Thanks for joining us this week, and uh, don't forget, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. 